9179-9170 to find out more. That's 9689-9170. A 3CR supporter. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Thursday Breakfast and it's December the 14th. Where does the year go? Good morning, Shares. Good morning, Grace. Good morning, morning, Dean. We've got a pretty jam-packed show today. Um, We'll have the seat of our pants again. At 7.30 we'll have Cam Walker talking to us about the appointment of Dr Gary Johns to head the ACNC, which is a statutory appointment. it's going to be quite interesting to find out a little bit more about um, the, the new commissioner of the Australian Charities and Non-for-Profits Commission. Um, mm. And at uh, 7.45, we've got Professor Lynn Randall from the Centre for the History of Violence and Centre for the 21st Century Humanities at University of Newcastle mm-hmm. talking to us about, uh, yeah, mapping the document and documenting massacres, site locations, mm. which, um, from what I remember, one of them... Well, actually, it's not a massacre site, but the Victoria Market, the Melbourne Market, is meant to be a burial, Indigenous burial site. So there was mm. a massive, um, um, you know, uh, fight to try and keep it from being redeveloped, from being dug up and things like that. So that's yeah. probably still going to continue for a while. I'm just going to jump in because you said the Vic Market. Um, there's a campaign running at the moment um, because they want to redevelop it again. Mm. And so the Vic Market was actually saved from being redeveloped um, during the green bans by the BLF in the 70s and the 80s, um, and there's a rally this Saturday at 11.30 at the Vic Market. Yeah. And Dan Sultan's going to be there, which is pretty exciting. Which is pretty exciting. <laughs> so if you're not hooked already by trying to save the Vic Market, go Get and see Dan there. Sultan. <laughs> and at 8, we've got uh, some guests in the studio, Riyadh. Oh, uh, no, uh, at 8, um, we're speaking to Riyadh over the okay. phone. Okay, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, he, and he was part of the organising committee. So he was part of the Palestinian Community Association of Victoria who organised a uh, march or solidarity march yesterday or last night. Mm. And then um, at a 10 we'll be speaking to a host of other exciting yeah, people so like Dr, Dr. Michaela Saha and mm-hmm. Dr Sari Zananiri. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we're talking to us about... Um, I guess the, the the narrative in Western media reporting um, about Israel. Yeah. So we'll yeah. find out from them. But that's our show today. But as usual, um, we would like to acknowledge that we are on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation and we acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. And that is the intro to the show. Very long, but we're here. <laughs> <laughs> 500 men shot for Union busters are back on the docks, this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the Community Assembly at any time of the day or night. For more information and details, call 
Call Worker Solidarity on 0401 516 967. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. Uh, it's 7.07 on 8.55am. We've been um, pushing and campaigning, obviously, for, you know, uh, with the uh, Stop the Adani group and mm. all the organisations who were um, f- putting up a good fight. And I think yesterday the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has had sent out an official letter vetoing the loan, making it impossible for the Turnbull government to bankroll Adani through NAIF. We spoke to the guys, I think, um, a while back as well regarding this. Um, and it's um, fantastic news. So that you know, that there's a there's a passionate and powerful movement that's been going on. Um, the Stop the Adani Coal Mine movement has stopped more than 25 banks, and they've stopped billions of dollars in loans. Um, uh, one Adani spokesperson said the company was still committed to Queensland despite the veto, and insisted the Queensland government was still supportive of its Carmichael Coal Mine proposal for the Galilee Basin. I'm pretty sure they're going to keep pushing ahead. Yeah. It's just funny to me that, like, so many people don't want them to go there. And if it was any other situation where there was, like, that much support for them not going there and people just being like, we're just going to go anyway. It's like, oh, you're just going to go anyway because you're going to make heaps of money. Yeah. Destroy everything. And a lot of money. I think Mm. that's really what's behind the push. So, um, And and part of it, like, it was initially, um, so they... It was because of a bad investment decision uh, for their port, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's, it is time for us to celebrate and uh, show the world really how hard everybody's worked and how far everyone's come mm. and how much people care. So you can, as this for a plug, um, you can get the uh, hashtag Stop Adani sticker pack 
um, and you can chip in any amount to the campaign. And obviously you get these beautiful stickers out in the mail and let people know that, you know, um, community movements and, and social movements do affect some kind of change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can go to acf.org.au if you want a sticker, stop Adani. So with the with us coming out and saying that, um, the Premier of Queensland, is that the rail line? Is that all of it? Because aren't they starting to build a bit of the rail line at the moment? Like, yeah, it's interesting where everything starts and where it stops. You yeah. know, like is the, the rail line was obviously predominantly going to be built for the mine, wasn't it? Mm, but then, point. as as the spokesperson for the Adani coal mine said, was you know that she insisted the Queensland government was still supportive. So is that the rail line part? Mm. Is that going to go ahead regardless? And you know, do, do they lay low for three years and then come back again and have yeah. another crack? Yeah. And I think also this relates really nicely to um, the interview with Cam Walker that we're going to have later, talking about the new position with the um, uh, not-for-profit. Dr. Jones, yeah. Yeah, but also this espionage laws that are coming in mm. and how the, go- the Liberal government especially is really trying to stop funding for um, campaign groups that yeah. have, you know, um, DRG status mm. and also like international money moving around for climate change stuff. So I think it's really interesting that with this new announcement of Adani and seeing all this work and campaigning working, actually getting there and them trying to shut it down in so many different ways. A lot of different ways. It was Mm. only probably two weeks ago we were talking about the government trying to make any yeah any of those parties that go and campaign and get donations to become political parties, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the push. Yeah. also in, oh, yeah. sorry, just no, to move on, in breaking news, um, the uh, British politicians vote in favour of giving Parliament the final say of any withdrawal deal with the European Union. So mm. um, that's interesting. So that's just on the eve of a, a, a summit in Brussels. Um, and uh, MPs uh, voted um, in favour of, of an amendment to demand Parliament to pass a separate bill to approve any final agreement signed with the bloc. So. That's going to so. be, be a decision that's going to be reversed. They're going to be like, let's just go back. It's too hard. Yeah. Let's just join the queue. I just feel like that's making everything more complicated. So, so the, whoever is doing the negotiation on the side of England has to go and negotiate with the EU, which is not going to go very well for them, let's face it, and then come back and put that to Parliament, and then Parliament probably is going to be like, nah. (laughs) And it's just like this continual chaos. We've got Harry's wedding to get ready for. Yeah, David's (laughs) wedding. I was like, who's Harry from? But of course, it's the... Oh, that's the big news over there, that guy, yeah. Oh, the guy! The royal family. I was like, what are you? I was just thinking Harry Potter. Not Harry Styles. <laughs> Harry Styles or whoever his name is. Yeah, there's bigger, bigger fish to fry. They've got to work out what's, what suits they've got to wear. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Like, it, it, this should have been... I mean, the, the, the people voted so long ago. Mm. It's probably in its 18th month or something. It's been going on for a while. That they yeah, haven't. it was the middle of last year. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, it's going to be a complete disaster. For it is a complete UK, disaster so. already. It's yeah. like David Cameron has a... A lot of things to answer for. Oh, he's gone now. He's probably sitting in a chair of a board somewhere, getting paid to just, <laughs> yeah. you know, just like uh, our friend Mike Beard, who's Those. now the uh, corporate and institutional banking head at 
NAB, who also announced recently that they're going to stop funding for new coal projects as of yesterday. I wonder who influenced those guys. That's interesting. And also, um, the Republicans lost in Alabama yesterday. Oh, was there like a a mini state election? No, it was a Senate seat. Okay, yeah. I'm not sure. Oh, it might have been vacated by that guy who told he didn't like Trump. Yeah, I think the more Democrats, recently. Yeah, it was, um, the Democrats won, but it's been a Republican seat for years, for a long yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty exciting, um, and hopefully that. So now the Republicans in the Senate they have a majority of one. So <laughs> which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> which which they probably you know only needed to to um to to make a difference over there. Yeah. Um, by the way, um sorry, I just I just checked um that Twitter but that Trump says that the Senate loss proves him right, whatever that means. Yeah, I know, and also he's he like um the guy Roy Moore who had lots of controversy around him who was running for the Republicans, Donald Trump was like, he's the man, he's going to win, we're going to win. And then, as like, he said that, and then he was also like, oh, the other guy from the Republicans, actually, I wanted him to run instead. So he's just like this master of lying. <laughs> well, he's not a master of it, but he just <laughs> gets yeah, yeah, away yeah. with it. <laughs> and I guess, yeah, when you talk about that, we've got, um, uh, I was listening in on the radio regarding the the strike that's happening at the moment mm. with, at the port as well, you know, and that people are more concerned about it affecting their Christmas shopping more than the reality of what's happening yeah. to the people. Oh. It's like, oh, we're not going to get out, you know, Nike shoes for our 14-year-old mm. kids. What's going on? Get it sorted. It's like, well, you know, it's yeah. a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, I think they've put a call out for people to go down and support them as well. Um, maybe we should... Oh, yeah. Also, um, uh, so a queer doom sludge metal pop punk outfit. (laughs) So many words, and I'm so excited about that. Um, From Melbourne, um, uh, playing a show uh, this Saturday at the Brunswick Mechanics Institute at 8pm. And on Monday night, they talked to Girls Offensive Radio, and we just have a snippet from that. So special guests from Volbusters. <laughs> how did you guys start as a band? How did you form your band? Well, mainly through friends. Mainly through friends and um, I suppose I th- the person who I think of as who put us together was Takia from Divide and Dissolve and um, actually... Another person was seminal in putting us together, Jess Ison. We were at her birthday party and me and River had already met, but um, that's when we started talking about the band. And then River already knew Kappa, didn't Mm, you? Yeah. Yeah. We basically just started talking about how we always wanted to start a band and be in a band. Me and Karen were talking in this conversation, but we'd never done it for various different reasons some of them being we didn't play any instruments well and <laughs> like have any you know you know when you're like oh yeah all my friends they're like very good musicians and you feel a bit like yeah um and yeah Karen was just like I've always wanted to start a band I was like yeah me too and we've never done it and then it just seemed like a really good vibe and we're like we should start a band yeah and it sort of grew from it. there and yeah. then um yeah and, and then finally we got and then we connected with Kappa and we started to jam 
and um, just love at first sight. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's beautiful. Yeah. And that's so. cool. You know, I think um, so much of ideas of punk at certain points in time have been that you don't need to be a really amazing music- musician to start playing but yes. then it doesn't often feel like that it can feel really intimidating yeah because it has this huge history of and, and like it's a different history and change history of, and then like very specific types of playing as well and very like specific kinds of like how you should be or how you should play punk or that sort of stuff and mm. yeah we're original punk that's what we always say mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we, we do identify more i think like well, at least I do, and I think maybe talking to River, River does maybe, with the kind of punk that was coming out between 76 and 80 rather than what came afterwards, like where there was actually a lot more challenging of things. And like for me, the history of punk you know, completely died after about 1981 when it became very mask and very kind of um, one-dimensional musically and in this in the way that the crowds that used to come to the things and mm-hmm. people started to dress uniformly in black leather jackets it all changed so much in about 1980-81 and you're mainly talking and about the australian punk scene hey oh uh, yeah and yeah. i think it also applies to europe but that's where i was it was in australia but um and i just think actually whatever this is this kind of burgeoning queer punk scene in melbourne and other places is I think is probably owes more to that earlier punk wave than it does to what came later. Even though there's a lot of political stuff that came in later that was really valuable. What's the so we've got a song of yours to play? What's it about? Yeah, we're going to play patriarchal punks. <laughs> yeah, this is like uh, musically, it's really in our kind of sludge doom kind of. It's one of our many uh, sort of like, yeah, quite slower songs. Yeah, yeah. like we do a, a bit of a range, like from thrashy stuff to this kind of stuff, and even jazzy stuff. But um, this one's kind of about that stuff that we were talking about before about the misogyny in the punk scene. We didn't really get onto that exactly, but. You know, rock and roll has always been a very misogynist kind of, like, industry or whatever, and punk became that, like we touched on. And this is a kind of a... This is a, like, a, a warn... No, maybe warning's not the right word. This is a kind of a... We're, gonna, we're sort of, like, having a go at the manicist-type um, dudes that run the punk scene and think that they own it, and this is about them, and this is about us saying, actually, you know, we're here. <laughs> so that's what this song's about, patriarchal punks, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah. Self-explanatory, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet, let's listen to it.
Okay, so that was a segment from um, Patriarchal Punks, with a P, um, from Bullbusters, who are having their album launch um, this Saturday at 8pm at the Brunswick Mechanics Institute. Um, they're being supported by Divide and Dissolve, Bo Brook, Saeed, Mildew and DJ what? Wahi? Wahi, maybe? Wahi. Um, it's it's uh, very um, sort of brutish music, you know, just really chill. Does it get any harder than that? Uh, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I was like, what type of punks are these guys? They're just like sitting it's back. About, it's it's about, about the lyrics. Yeah, and it's about the lyrics. And it's about, like, you know, saying, well, saying you know. there's something I, cool. I, I grew up in the Western suburbs. When you said punk, it, you couldn't even hear the lyrics. It was just hardcore. Since your time, it's moved on to, you know, sludge and... In my day, we used to wear onion rings on our belts, which oh, yeah. was the style at the time. Onion rings? What? <laughs> um, um, anyway, they... They classify themselves as a queer doom sludge metal pop punk outfit. So it's a bit different from just your standard punk. Standard punk, <laughs> fantastic. Hey, um, we've sort of, um, I think I think before we get Cam on, we'll do a few community announcements, but there's an interesting article in here which sort of also relates to what we'll be talking to Cam about. Um, you know, we were talking about um, housing and affordable housing. So apparently the Turnbull government will launch an independent inquiry into... Allegations of rorts and misconduct plaguing a multi-billion dollar federal scheme designed to help house the poor. Um, so Social Services Minister Christian Porter will announce a review of the National Rental Affordability Scheme today following complaints against housing providers. Uh, and one of them, uh, uh, Ethan Affordable Housing, was accused by investors last year of, del- of delayed payments um, and Ethan accounts for around 2,000 of the scheme's 33,000 properties, but the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission revoked Ethan's charity status last year after investigating its activities. Um, so it's quite weird that there is meant to be a national rental affor- affordability scheme which is being run by a charity and a not-for-profit organisation, but then the government's just like, oh, you guys aren't doing a good job. Um, I would have thought that you'd have an official sort of body running it, like a, either a, a, a business or maybe the government themselves would have their own arm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I guess of- this is like been happening for a really long time where we've been shifting away from government-run, government-owned community services and social services into community sector, which is uh, non-for-profit, mm. and now we're also moving into for-profit organisations well, that are yeah. running community services. And if you're running them as a for-profit, obviously there's going to be lots of um, problems and contentions within that and yeah. things going on and even... Are you providing the best service for the customer or are you or providing you just for trying business? to make money, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And also yeah. with the for-profit, uh, with the non-for-profit organisations as well, moving away from government control. It's like, why are we making this whole bureaucratic... Um, kind of structures out of government. I'm making lots of hand gestures while I say this that you can't <laughs> see. Um, yeah. Into community services, and then so those community services have to put in for tenders, and they have to compete against everybody else, and to get the con- the tenders, they're often undercutting everybody else, and also undercutting the amount of money that they need to be able to provide services. So recently, there was a grant proposal that got through to deal with um, the humanitarian intake. So when people first come through humanitarian intake into Australia, they get a year of quite intensive casework. Mm. 
um, and the organisation that I'm not going to name that got that grant um, undercut themselves so much that they had pretty much had, I think it was 250 clients for each caseworker. Yeah. So that's ridiculous. Like they were Mm. seeing, they're having one phone conversation once a month and seeing clients once every three months. And this is... As you would, yeah. Yeah, this is ridiculous. This is people that have just come to Australia that don't have... Family, don't have support networks. Yeah, aren't enrolled in school, don't have housing, don't have Medicare, don't have Centrelink, don't speak the English, don't speak English very well a lot of the time. Um, and have lots of barriers, so there's, yeah, there's lots of problems with it, and I guess I just went on a bit of a rant. No, no, and I think it was also like speaking to Professor Kilby last week, mm. talking about the NDIS and some yeah. of the problems that that sort of model comes up with as well. Yeah, you know? and it's interesting too that the housing affordability scheme, because that's different also from like... Uh, the National Rental Affordability yeah, Scheme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's also different from housing services that, communi- that community services are giving to people and helping people yeah. with as well. So like conflating those two things and saying that all the housing crisis services are doing a really bad job. And it's like, well, a lot of them are doing a really bad job, but that's not because of how they're working. It's because of just how big the homeless population is in yeah. Australia and how little funding there is and how little crisis accommodation there is and long-term housing options for people like they're putting people into private rentals that's really the only option but as we all know like the private rental market in most of australia is really unaffordable and really expensive and really competitive so and now you're talking about um rental accommodation so last month um, the government uh, in, increased powers to punish providers who do the wrong thing. Mm. So, you know, you, you've gone in there, you've done the tender, you've obviously undercut yourself. Yes, there are some things that you might not do well, um, but now the department has the power to compel organisations to fulfil their contractual obligations, mm. which, you know, it's hard enough to provide the service, let alone be worried about what you're meant to be doing from the government end, you mm. know. So, yeah, it's quite... it's. Um, I wonder what that means in as a change because it's like when you have um, a grant or funding from the government, like you have to fulfil certain anyway, things yeah. anyway. Yeah. Like that's how grants work in mm. all kind of places. So I guess... With, with this one, it's really to pass on tax incentives and payments onto investors in a timely way. Mm. You know, so obviously... They're, they're, so then again, it goes back to who who's, who's gaining. So the investors who... We're yeah. putting people into their homes are the ones that are being looked after because their payments and incentives have to be done, you know, before the 30th of each month. Totally. And if you're a little bit late. Yeah. And that rent, uh, rental affordability scheme just means that there's more houses out there that have uh, below market rent um, by a little bit. I think it's 75% or something. Yeah. But anybody can apply for those houses. So it's not mean test- tested as well. So also... A lot of compared to the um, compared to community housing yeah. or social housing or public housing, um, and, so also, and also there's been a 19 percent jump in Victorian seeking homelessness homelessness help oh. um, as an impact of um, yeah it's yeah. crazy yeah. Like, yeah. the numbers just going to keep yeah. rising I think those numbers that I heard um, on the way in here actually that uh, the highest population like group of people accessing um, homeless services are actually women in their late 20s and their early 30s, mm, which, which is, is interesting because it used to be women, older women. Older, yeah, yeah. who probably had relied on their partner or husband to provide 
an income and then all of a sudden maybe they're not together anymore and you have to go and start all over again. Yeah, but I think it also speaks to, um, you know, like systematic oppression of women in terms of um, getting paid less than men in jobs, taking time out for maternity leave, like all those kind of things which compound um, the different levels of income and kind of resources that men and women have, especially when they get older. And just quickly, before we get um, Cam on, I just wanted to share something talking about the comparity and, um, you know, differences. So my uh, old colleague, uh, Con, has decided to boycott any speaking engagements, and he has been doing that for the last, uh, I think, nearly 18 months, where um, 50% of the panel isn't um, female. So he's obviously, you know, as a, as a Order of Australia, we know, and doing work with refugee work, and he gets invited to a lot of panels to go mm. and talk, and he's decided unless 50% of the panel's women, he's not going to go. So he's been going on it for the last 18 months, which I think is a pretty good initiative to try and, you know, that put that message across that, you mm. know, it's not, it's not fair. There's an imbalance there as well. Um, but let's try and see if we can get Cam Walker on. Union Busters are back on the docks, this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the community assembly at any time of the day or night. For more information and details... Call Workers Solidarity on 0401-516-967. It's just gone past 7.30. Um, We're just about to introduce our next guest who has been following this... um, uh, I guess uh, development and, and, and the issue that's been follow that's been around the ACNC. Um, the ACNC is a statutory appointment, and it is the uh, convention um, that that the government adhere to um, for Australian public service policies with a merit-based selection process, which has bizarrely appointed Dr. Gary Johns to head the ACNC. But to find out a little bit more about why this is so bizarre, especially in regards to the social sector, we are joined by um, Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. Good morning, Cam. Good morning. Thanks for joining us again on 3CR. Lost my train of thought there. Um, I know you've done a lot of work on this issue um, with Friends of the Earth. Can you um, just shed some light as to I guess your major concern to the appointment of Dr. Gary Johns, but also um, explain to our listeners really what the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission does. Yep, sure. So the ACNC was set up basically to manage the whole of the charity sector, so that's welfare, services, international aid, environmental organisations and the rest of it. And at the time, the movement or the sector, if you like, felt it was a good idea because um, at present, as an environmental NGO, we report to the ATO plus to the Federal Environment Department and other groups report to other entities within the the government. And so it was presented as a way to centralise and streamline 
reporting and accountability and therefore to reduce what the government loves to talk about, which is red tape. Uh, but the way it is played out now is uh, this is just a really blatantly political appointment. Um, it really is a remarkable appointment because it's a man who has a very long and deep connection to the Institute of Public Affairs. And I know a lot of people at 3CR uh, will realise that that's a far-right uh, small government, pro-free enterprise, anti-environment, anti-trade union uh, entity. And he is bringing his ideology to this position in spite of his claims that he won't. And it's just a remarkable appointment at this point in time, given a very long chain of events that have been going on around the charity sector since Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister. And I guess to um, to have the appointment of, of a man who sort of criticised how registered charities lobbied for their cause and received government funding but also um, claimed, you know, that pe- uh, Indigenous people were cash cows and, and that people on welfare payments should be forced to, to use contraception in the, in the late 90s. It's, it's quite bizarre. It is, and he, he was at the Institute of Public Affairs for almost 10 years and did manage a lot of their work, which was tracking and critiquing the role of charities. So, you know, people love to use that term, fox in charge of the chickens, but it's absolutely correct in this case. I think across the board, the reaction from everyone from World Vision to Greenpeace to, to welfare sector has been absolutely uniform. The Community Council of Australia, which is the umbrella group for a lot of the community organisations, the ones who said it was bizarre, but they were very clear. They said this is clearly an attempt by the government to continue to silence its critics. Mm. And it's interesting that the Human Rights uh, Legal Centre recently put out a report where they did interviews with more than 1,500 people in the community sector about government approaches to charities and they found very clearly that many people who work for non-government organisations, NGOs, already are self-silencing their advocacy because the government is either threatening to take away their government funding, has taken away their funding, threatening to rein in what they can do in terms of their their advocacy. So it's already working, it's having a chilling effect and uh, I think this latest uh, appointment of Gary Johns kind of comes at the end of a very long process and there is no way you can see it as being anything other than blatantly political. And uh, and I think um, you mentioned, you know, that the sectors that it covers and I was just reading um, more recently that um, you know, last month the, the government uh, has increased powers to punish providers when it comes to things like the National Rental Affordability Scheme um, and obviously his appointment is all about applying law and advocacy. What, what are, are the laws clear in regards to what charities and, and not-for-profits can do? Yes, it, it is, but it's always contested. Mm. So people might remember there was a case about 10 years ago where a group in New South Wales called Aid Watch, which does basically a watchdog role of Australia's foreign aid program, mm, uh, was right. uh, it lost its charity uh, status and, and it went through the court system and eventually they got it back. And that was that set the precedent that charities, i.e. NGOs, are allowed, including under the Constitution, to carry out advocacy. So it has mm. been tested in the courts, but there's been this long, long, long game being played by the Conservatives in the federal government. And if you think of the people that are keenly involved in this, it's, you know, it's the people on the far right. They're being supported by elements of the conservative media, particularly the Australian newspaper. And it, this has been promoted by the Minerals Council of Australia, the Queensland Resources Corporation and so on. So it's a very long game to trim in what's considered allowable activity. 
even though our right to engage in advocacy has been tested in the courts. It's interesting um, hearing you say it's been a really long game and there's some things that have happened this year and last year that I'm seeing in the same kind of thing, like the raid against the ASU and then the involvement of GetUp in that, um, and also like the community legals losing their funding and getting their funding back and talking about um, how they're not supposed to be doing reform work and campaign work again. Um, is this, like, is it always on multiple sides that they're attacking people? It is, and that's because the people who are driving this within the federal coalition basically hate everyone on the left and progressive side of society. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if you're doing welfare or international aid or working conditions or environmental protection, they dislike it all. So they're seeking to apply pressure where they can. So this campaign, it goes back to the 1990s. It was clearly initiated through the Institute of Public Affairs. It really hit a high point during the Tony Abbott era. And they're seeking to limit activity, advocacy, funding. Just recently, you'll be aware they've been attempting to stop funding for groups from overseas. Mm -hmm. And that's really focused on, on GetUp, which is particularly disliked by this group of people. They're also looking at the, this idea of groups that endorse so-called illegal activity. That is events where there might be a protest and people might be arrested. So they're coming from multiple fronts. At one point, there was an attempt to put a secondary boycott clause in so that charities uh, couldn't support you know, boycotts of corporate activity. It, it is coming from many, many angles. And now this one is a little bit like killing us by red tape, so increasing audits and increasing you know, this kind of sham accountability because NGOs do have to report, which is very you know, reasonable and that's got to be rigorous, but it feels like they're tying us up ever more in this red tape, whilst also making very clear from the top of government that they don't want us to be doing advocacy. Which essentially means that um, the whole idea of the ACNC operating independently from government is a, uh, a bit of a smokescreen well, with yeah, his appointment. Yes, we'll have to see how it plays out. He's very adamant to saying, oh, no, I will just be a manager and I will be an independent regulator. But, you know, you really, I, I personally cannot believe that, given his long history mm. um, and his detailed critiques of NGOs. And when he was appointed, his statement to the community about what he intended to do in this position was published in the Australian newspaper. It wasn't published initially on the website or sent to community groups. And I think given that the Australian has been the main media outlet pursuing the anti-NGO agenda, it is very, very difficult not to see that as even a political statement in its own right. If you wanted to tell the community sector what you're intending to do in the position, you would have sent an email, which is very easy, to all the thousands of registered charities, and instead he chose to put it basically behind the paywall at the Australian newspaper. So it's clear who he thinks his audience is. Hmm. Um, you touched on it a little bit, but there's been announcements of uh, they want to change the Espionage Act um, recently in terms of people, NGOs and stuff, having to um, explain where they get international funding from. Is this the same kind of attack or how does it relate to this appointment? Yes, yes. So as I've been saying, there's this multi-pronged attack and it keeps coming up and sometimes they lose on one front so they've got to try another one. Mm. One front they tried was the House of Representatives inquiry and that went on for about a year and that had people like George Christensen in it, who's very well known for example 
progressive views, when that basically failed to deliver an outcome that would allow them to take the charity status away from all these groups, they, they're, they're doing a, a, a strategy called follow the money. So they've gone, oh, a lot of money comes from overseas for some groups, including aid groups, let's cut off that tap. Mm. And what they've done is put that issue together with espionage issues, which are legitimate. We want to make sure that foreign powers, foreign governments aren't unduly interfering in Australian society and Australian politics and exercising undue influence over our political processes. Mm-hmm. It's really important we have rigorous and transparent laws around that. Who can you get money from? Under what circumstances? You know, how do you report on that? We've seen, obviously, a, a number of politicians caught up in that debate. It's very disingenuous to link funding of NGOs from overseas with that narrative. And there's actually three aspects that have been caught up in a set of legislation re- relating to foreign influence, espionage and foreign funding. And uh, yeah, they really need to pull out the NGO aspect of that and treat it separately because this isn't about, you know, do foreign powers such as China exert undue influence over NGOs because they don't. There's a separate conversation to be had about the influence of foreign powers over the political process through political parties and through government processes. Cam, I guess, um, you know, we know that, you know, from what you've just said, John has consistently shown himself to be an anti-charity campaigner and I guess it's probably a bit difficult to see how he can or will act in good faith on behalf of the sector. There is a petition that has been started uh, by concerned members of the sector and supported by Andrew Lee, but there's also one on Pro Bono Australia as well, so that our listeners can can go in there and show some, some support to you guys. That would be great. And if people just wanted to have a quick look at the Friends of the Earth Australia website, you'll see there's a quite a long history of this that goes back at least 10 years in our instance of just explaining who the key players are. And it's quite clear that this is, this is a, an amalgamation of, of forces from the far right within the conservative uh, coalition, conservative media and the resources sector. And uh, I think that that's laid out quite clearly on the website if people are interested in the, the deeper kind of backstory to this. Cam, thank you once again for joining us on 3CR. I'm sure you'll be back on the airwaves again. We really appreciate you joining us on Thursday Breakfast. Thanks very much for the interest. Bye. Bye. And that was Cam Walker, the campaign's coordinator uh, of Friends of the Earth, who has done a lot of work on the issue. And as he mentioned, um, you know, just go on the Friends of the Earth website and have a, a quick read. He has been working on this for a very, very long time. Obviously, yeah, now not-for-profit um, businesses and the sector itself uh yeah, it just seems really, really crazy because I think mm. I read somewhere over 100 charities wrote to the Prime Minister raising concerns about the future of the ACNC and to request a robust process to appoint the best possible new ACNC commissioner. Mm. But obviously um, this guy, Gary Johns, is the best. <laughs> <laughs> Gary. Oh, he yeah, sounds Gary. like a sort of community sector Trump. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and just in a similar vein, uh, the Guardian reported yesterday that environment funding um, or spending on environment department programs has been slashed by a third since the coalition took office. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's... Um, uh, but, but his <laughs> popularity, you know, when they do the... the, the, the the popularity who's popular, it's, it's always seems to be higher than um, Bill Shorten's. Is it? Uh, yeah, it's always is seems it coming, to be one is higher. Is it coming 
Who? Is it Malcolm? Yeah, oh. yeah. They, every time I hear it, they're like, oh, his popularity, popularity is like 52% and then oh, Bill Shorten's 48%. Last time I checked the two-party preferred or whatever it was, you know, that there was a report in, you know, our favourite paper, The Australian, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, talking about the, these polls saying, oh, Malcolm Turnbull's... Um, Popularity, uh, popularity has dipped. increased by 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 three points, you know, which is within the error, the margin of error. Yeah. Um. So it's yeah. So I find reporting on on polls can be a bit problematic sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty funny, especially considering we had Trump and Brexit. In the yeah. Trial. Yeah. Oh, Are you aged over 65? The University of Melbourne is conducting interviews exploring how radio can impact well-being. Researchers will interview you for 60 minutes and in return you'll be given a $25 gift card. For more information, please visit cbf.com.au forward slash wellbeing. This research is proudly funded by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. A 3CR supporter. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. Now we're joined by Professor Lyndall Ryan from the Centre for the History of Violence and the Centre for the 21st Century Humanities at the University of Newcastle. Uh, good morning, Lyndall. Oh, good morning. Um, so you, you were involved in a project um, that... Mm. Oh, sorry. Uh, so you were involved in a project that uh, documented more than 150 Aboriginal massacre sites um, and created an online digital map. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. The ideas to the map uh, came from the fact that many people kept on saying to me, we'll never know how many massacres there really were uh, of Aboriginal people across Australia. And after about 20 years, I thought, well, nobody's actually tried to, you know, add them up or provide enough evidence and make them accessible. And I think with the changing in technology over the last decade or so, the idea of a digital map started to take shape. And I think having a digital map means that it's absolutely accessible to everybody. And most importantly of all, it's accessible to people who live in the regional areas of Australia. And it's people who live in the regional areas who've, who have responded most positively to the map. And I think that making a lot of new information available has enabled it to get a life of its own. <laughs> it's really got away from me a bit. And that's, but that's been very exciting. Um, so, 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 could you tell, so other um, having a look at the map, um, there were yes. the, the, most of the massacres recorded were um, on the east coast or on the eastern side of Australia. 
Well, at this stage, we've only been able to do the eastern side of Australia. Uh, the aim is to cover the whole of Australia. And in 2018, I'm hoping we can include uh, South Australia and the Northern Territory. And then in 2019, we'll be able to include Western Australia. It involves an enormous amount of research in checking sources, double-checking, and making sure that we've got a site, a date, and good sources. And if I can't find those three basic criteria, I can't put uh, the site up on the map. It's taken me four years to get the sites in Eastern Australia, and I have by no means finished. I, I just felt that after four years, I needed to put up some results uh, of all the research that had been going on. And I had started with Tasmania, then moved into Victoria and then New South Wales, and I had a colleague working uh, on sites in Queensland, and will continue to do that. So... The other states will come on board and I will continue to work up the east coast of Australia myself. It has been a much bigger project than I imagined, uh, but it is now beginning to take shape. We're, we're speaking to um, Professor Linda Ryan. Lin, um, Professor Ryan, I guess, yeah, that's the question I was going to ask. I mean, here in, in, in Fitzroy, we're on uh, the Wurundjeri land, and then when you drive down to yes. places like Geelong, it's uh, what are we wrong. How difficult was it for you to actually, you know, work off maybe the tribal map to then get to a point where you had, um, you know, those three key areas answered by members of those communities who maybe went through some of the massacres or have a history of storytelling about what happened in those locations? Well, that's a very good question because so far I have not been doing a great deal of consultation with Aboriginal communities. I see this map as the map not so much for Aboriginal people mm. but for white Australians and I've been using a lot of white sources mm. to to uh, put the map together. I know there's a, a wonderful map in the Melbourne Museum at the moment that was launched last month. So in a sense, Victoria is a, is well ahead of the other states in acknowledging massacre and in representing them in in many different ways. We've also got the work of the artist Judy Watson, who is also being... Uh, putting massacre sites on a lot of her artwork. So I've started from the point of view that these massacres were carried out by white people and they often left evidence of massacre that as a historian I can find in a range of sources. But as I move beyond Victoria and into parts of New South Wales, I'm much more reliant on the uh, evidence from Aboriginal communities to support the evidence that I've already collected from the white sources. So I think as the project moves on, more and more Aboriginal communities will be involved. That, of course, is very time-consuming as well. Um, and so I'm just gradually uh, doing that. But I have to say, since this first part of the map uh, went up, I've had an enormous response from Aboriginal communities mm. right across Australia. Uh, I've had an enormous response from local historical society groups uh, across regional Australia. Everybody wants to help out. They want to 
find evidence. They want to make sure that the sites are in the right place. They want to ensure that I've got the, the strongest possible evidence. So when I said earlier that the map had got away from me for, uh, a little bit, it's the fact that people appear to have taken ownership of this map and they really want to make sure that I've got the best possible sources and incontrovertible evidence. And that's been very empowering for me. It's given me huge incentive to continue and I've, uh, I'll be, I've been invited to go and talk to a number of uh, communities over the coming year. Uh, so the map has got a life of its own now. And, and I think um, more importantly, you know, it's all about um, what you mentioned too, that very few... Australians are aware of, of this story or the history of the massacres. I mean, I know when I went through school, uh, the history lesson started in 1788 and you didn't really yes. learn anything about what happened prior to that. So, you know, making sure, as you say, that this will be a useful tool for history students, scholars and the general public, it's all about um, providing significant opportunities, I guess, for reconfiguring Australia's understanding of Aboriginal history and, and, and really, you know, what has happened uh, through colonisation. Oh, there's no question about that. And already uh, school teachers and university lecturers have contacted me saying that they have used the map, they've put the map up and uh, used the map in their own classes. It's a, a wonderful map for students to do their own research on and it's and it's accessible to to the whole community. And I guess when I first put the map up, the shock value of just seeing the sites we had there already indicates that people really wanted to know more. I think that's been, you know, the most important part of the map. We do have to rewrite Australian history. We had a lot of massacres. The ones I've got up are just simply the ones we know most about. More and more are appearing all the time. Mm. And the fact that they were really, they were across, right across Australia indicates we have to rethink who we are as Australians and we have to rewrite what the what happened in the past and I'm, I hope that my project will provide that very strong anchor to begin that work. Well, um, there, yeah, it's 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 great that you're actually undertaking this this work. Yeah, and and on that note, um, how how would people, if they uh, want to learn more about it or see the map, how how do they access it? Well, they can just go to Google and Google in the word colonial massacres in one word and uh, the, the site usually comes up. Uh, it's got a more complicated uh, address, but normally that's how most people find it. If they would like to contact me about information about a particular site or, or anything like that, there is a contact um, on the page uh, uh, as well, and a number, you know, we've had nearly a, a thousand people have contacted us over the last few months since the map first went up. So it seems to be working. It seems to be working. Um, and we're, I'm very grateful to hear from anybody actually. They've been very helpful. People have provided extra information. People have sent me, uh, information from their families, uh, newspaper information, diaries that I didn't know about. It's been an extraordinary response to the map. 
And I think um, in WA more recently, uh, there was a, the Stir Creek massacre site, which was uncovered as well. But um, yeah, you're gonna. Um, it's going to take another um, few years for you to finally do the whole of Australia. But um, thank you for for taking the effort to actually um, yeah educate most of us about what has happened. We appreciate you joining us on Thursday breakfast. Thank you. Thank Lindell. you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Lyndall Ryan there from the Centre for the History of Violence and Centre for the 21st Century Humanities at the University of Newcastle. The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defense fund. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash solidarity defense fund. A 3CR supporter. 500 men sacked for Union busters are back on the docks, this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the community assembly at any time of the day or night. For more information and details... Call Workers Solidarity on 0401-516-967. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT. West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. Okay, so now we have uh, Riyad Al-Abbasi, who's a public relations officer for the Palestinian Community Association of Victoria, who organised a solidarity march yesterday evening through the streets of Melbourne. Good morning, Riyad. Good morning. Um, Could you tell us a bit about the event you planned yesterday, which drew a mixed crowd from around Melbourne? Yeah, um, the rally was to oppose um, the latest uh, declaration of um, Trump, uh, declaring that Jerusalem is the uh, capital uh, support Israel and intention uh, of moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So we made this rally, which was noticed, and as we had uh, people from different backgrounds, uh, different 
and the turnout was really great. Um, and the, there are early reports saying that the event drew um, 800 to 1,000 people. That's good. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, on such a short notice and uh, midweek, that's a great achievement. Um, how and if it oh, says yeah, and if it says something, it says that people are willing to join us and say no to any, you know, any bad politics. Um, really sorry to interrupt. Do you do you think you could talk a bit louder into the phone? We're just having a bit of trouble hearing you. Oh, uh, well, come again, sorry. Do you mind just speaking a bit louder? We're having a bit of um, trouble hearing you uh, in the studio. Okay, no problem. Thank you, sorry. Um, so, so how important is it to hold our solidarity pro- uh, pro- uh, protests uh, for the Palestinian community um, outside of Palestine? Um, it's extremely important uh, because we always uh, part of uh, our uh, our goals as the Palestinian community association of Victoria is to keep our people, of, you know, especially the young ones, linked to their homeland, which is Palestine. We are Australians, but we are Palestinians as well at the same time. Uh, we, we are trying to preserve our culture, our beliefs, our traditions, and we're conveying this to our kids and to our families and lots of the Palestinian people who live in Melbourne or outside of, of Palestine. Um, lots of them have never, ever seen Palestine, actually. So it is our duty and our aim to keep them linked to their roots in Palestine. And just to give some context, um, we're, uh, we're speaking to Riyad El-Adasi, the Public Relations Officer for the Palestine Community Association of Victoria. On Wednesday last week, um, Riyad, Donald Trump obviously announced that the United States will recognise Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Um, is, is, is that really where you wanted some more support through the rally yesterday? Yes, um, just to put... Um Straighten up a few things and to, for your uh, audience to understand that any, uh, any U.S. president who successfully made it to be a president has it in his agenda and they say publicly that their policy is this. It is one of their, uh, uh, it's a statement in their campaign. So they have to say that we totally and fully support Israel. Uh, we will move the embassy to Jerusalem. We recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. All of them said the same. It's in their agenda. The difference is that Trump is a bold bastard, as I like to call him. Uh, he's just going ahead with it, mm. and he wants to do it. And basically, this is um, for, us, for, for us in Palestine, and for me as a Palestinian who lived all of my life in Gaza, uh, we knew it. It's, it's obvious to us, okay? Um, all Trump has done, actually, for us is that he has, he has successfully unmasked all of his sheep, all of the U.S. slaves. And by that, I'm talking about the Arab and Muslim leaders or so-called leaders that follow his, uh, his footsteps and the footsteps of the U.S. So basically, um, in a way, in a sarcastic way, thank you, Trump, for doing this. You have exposed everybody. You have, you have exposed all the hypocrites around the world. Thank you very much, Trump. And, and, do, you, do, and, and do you think, Riyadh, that he's going to, um, he, he, it's actually going to go ahead? You know, he's, 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 he talks a lot, but he does, he's not a man of action. 
Uh, I think he will do it. He will go ahead with it. Despite the world opposing it, he will go go ahead with it because he is just a slave for the Zionists. That's what he is. Just like any other U.S. president and most of the world leaders, they are all Zionist slaves to the Zionists. Um, well, just uh, uh, last night, I think it was, or yesterday, yeah. uh, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation Summit in Istanbul um, uh, declared East Jerusalem the capital of occupied uh, Palestine in uh, retaliation yeah. of, of Trump's comments. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, that's pathetic. Jerusalem is for the Palestinians. Palestine is from the river to the sea, period. There is nothing called Israel. Uh, the the fight for Palestine is a fight of ideology, as the Zionists say. If you go to any Zionist website and see what, they, what their rhetoric is, their rhetoric is uh, Palestine is Jewish, or, you know, that's what they say. And the fight for Palestine has been and will always be a, a war of ideology. It's not a political issue. So um, those sheep are just pandering for the U.S., um, I can't say thank you to them because that is a pathetic, weak statement, period. Um, and, uh, Riyad, can you um, t- tell a bit about, um, so if people want to follow your events um, with the Palestinian Community Association of Victoria, um, how should they do that? Um, okay. We, the organizers of this rally, we were the Palestinian Association of Victoria. They can follow us on our Facebook page. And they can also uh, follow the coalition against Israeli apartheid, Kaya. Um, we, you will always have, uh, you will always know about our rallies. There's also Australian Palestinian, um, uh, sorry, APAN, Australian Palestinian uh, network. Okay, APAN. You can go to their website, and they also post a lot about all of our activities. And then you can stay up to date with us. There's also uh, Australians for Palestine. Uh, just to name a few of, of them, of the organizations, and there are 20 more that do it. So this is how you can uh, follow our rallies and follow our events and everything that we do. Great. Thank you so much, Riyad Adasi, uh, for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank Bye. you, Riyad. So that was uh, Riyad Al-Adasi, the Public Relations Officer for the Palestinian Community Association of Victoria, who yesterday organised a solidarity march um, in uh, retaliation of Trump's comments last week. Bisexual Alliance is a non-profit organisation dedicated to raising awareness and supporting people who are bisexual, people who are multi-gender attracted, their partners and their families. Bisexual Alliance runs several monthly discussion groups in and outside of Melbourne to offer support, a safe space to chat about your experiences and to explore others' experience of multi-gender attraction. These groups are for bisexuals, those who are questioning and their loved ones. For more information, visit bi-alliance.org or email info at by-alliance.org. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or 
DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. Join us to mark 100 years since the serenading of Adela Pankhurst, imprisoned at Pentridge for her anti-war activities. Serenading Adela, a street opera, recreates the summer night when hundreds of supporters sang socialist songs and cooeyed over the prison walls. Come along to Pentridge on Sunday the 7th of January or catch our December preview. It's all free. For details, search Serenading Adela or email serenadingadela at gmail.com. A 3CR supporter. Okay, now we're joined in studio with Dr. Michaela Sahar and Dr. Sari uh, Zananini. So, Michaela Sahar is an Australian-Palestinian poet and academic. Her PhD focused on the impact of Israeli national narrative in Western media reporting of two 21st century assaults on the occupied Palestine territories, while more recently her work looked at the comparisons of Israeli and Australian settler colonial uh, paradigms. And Sari Zananiri is an Australian-Palestinian artist and academic. His PhD looked at the ways in which biblical frameworks colour the imaging of the Palestinian landscape. And more recently, he has been researching masculinity and transgression in the Middle East. Welcome, Sari and Michaela. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> um, so um, many have, if we just... Go right into it. Uh, many have attributed the start of the Israeli occupation to the end of the Six-Day War in 1967. But, Michaela, I believe you say otherwise. Sure. So I think it's um, the, the narrative that Israel runs is that uh, the Six-Day War achieved the reunification of Jerusalem. Um, but a lot of Palestinians and uh, their supporters look at 1948 as being the key date that we should look at in terms of um, the beginning of occupation of the Palestinian people. So massive land expropriation, population uh, displacement, um, uh, which have ongoing effects such as what we're looking at today. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, 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 could you just give us a bit of historical context, I suppose, for, um, for I, I suppose a lot of people uh, s- started conceptualising sort of the Palestinian uh, na- nationalism, as, as uh, for, for lack of a better word, um, with the start of British occupation and the, the end of, um, I suppose, the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about the, 19th, the late 19th century and what's going on across the Ottoman Empire, you do have a lot of tensions between, you know, the um, significant Arab populations that were governed by the, you know, the Ottomans being Turks and the Turks themselves. So, you've, you know, from the, you know, from the, about the 1880s onwards, you have what's known as the Nahda, which is like the Arab, you know, it's couched as an Arab Renaissance, but it's a thought of Arab nationalist thought, which is already kind of um, beginning to think about Arab autonomy within within the empire. Um, so you're already kind of talking about a scenario in which there are all of these national aspirations beginning to develop. And in some ways we can kind of see um, uh, Palestinian aspirations kind of starting in that late 19th century period. Obviously, um, British colonialism and Sykes-Picot and everything that would kind of um, come to pass with World War I would lead to a point where this becomes very acute, particularly for Palestinians who would never achieve that autonomy 
in the way that, say, Syrians or Jordanians or uh, Lebanese would. Um, but I think that's kind of the kernel of where this sort of um, Palestinian nationalism really comes from. So it's something that actually predates both Zionism and um, the British Mandate. Mm. And then, and then, how does um, so with the especially with the with, with the start of Zionism in in Europe, um, and more and more and more um, uh, sort of uh, sort of Zionists coming back to um, so-called Israel or, or Palestine, um, you know, how how did that influence, um, I suppose, the Palestinian side of? Well, sure. In some ways, I think it's important not to think about the Zionists coming back to Israel. And I think that's one of the the myths of Zionism. And so you kind of have a a number of settler colonial myths that operate um, through Zionist narrative, although they're not unique to um, the Israeli form of colonialism that you see in Palestine. So they're things like uh, the land of the desert, um, that uh, it's a civilising mission so that the people there are uncivilised, ideas that... um, a, a colonising mission has a, a kind of morality of arms or a purity of arms um, as opposed to the forces that, or the, the people that they're trying to remove and that these people are creating kind of a halcyon pioneering frontier um, in, in, in making the desert uh, bloom and, and, and bringing these ideas to fruition. Um, but of course what we, what we forget about in some ways is that um, the, the particularities of... Zionism come into effect during, 19, during 1948 in some ways. And so then you have the particularities of a nationalising um, or, a, or a settler colonial um, aspira- aspirationally national movement. Um, and this is where they actually encounter the Palestinians. And that's where the Palestinians become, I think, particularly relevant. Now, it's not to say that the um, Zionist movement doesn't um, make its way into Palestine in the early 20th century, but it's in the um, articulation um, of, the, of the state of Israel that the particularities of the Palestinian people become an issue. Mm. Um, and so, so your, your, your PhD actually looked at some of these narratives. Could you uh, t- talk us through some of that? Sure. Well, <clears throat> in fact, my PhD looks at, at um, certain things like the way in which... Um, I guess the question in my PhD is, is how do you have an entire society of people who um, have very little interest, I suppose, in the fate of the Palestinian people after 1948? And in fact, you know, survey, fairly recent surveys in the last couple of years conducted by Israeli organisations that are um, sympathetic to Palestinians, um, one example being uh, Zokrot, um, find that a lot of Israelis, uh, even you could say uh, left liberal Israelis, are not aware of what happened in the Nakba. So you have an entire infrastructure within the um, Israeli state of education, of militarism, um, in which people uh, have, a, have a particular particular ideas of national narrative that simply don't admit of the Palestinian story. Um, do you want to... Yeah, and I think there's also sort of a prehistory to this, which is to do with Western imaging of Palestinians as well. Um, so if we kind of think about the way Palestine is imaged, um, you know, in the 19th century and early 20th century by the West, it is very much as this ancient land, you know, Palestinian modernity, the whole um, sort of flowering of this um, Arab modernity during the Nahda is, is never imaged. You know, what we see are fairly empty landscapes. There's this sort of very biblical framework that's interested in tracing these holy sites. So there is sort of already this invisibility which makes, um, you know, um, 
the West and 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 these sort of very um, biblical frameworks of imaging the landscape quite um, quite complicit. So you've got this kind of intersecting with Zionism after 1948. Um, and I think that kind of creates this dynamic where, you know, at least in the, the Western imaginary, there were no Palestinians, you know. But of course, and if you go back to sort of founding Zionist texts like Theodore Herzl's The Jewish State, he talks about the ideal conditions for a co- colonial project, um, and he, he describes the idea of rounding up and blowing up bears. And of course, they haven't at this time thought about where a Jewish national state might be articulated, but simply that it's any settler colonial project is going to have to remove um, an indigenous population wherever that state might be. Mm. And violently. Um, I was just thinking when you were talking about uh, the survey that they conducted and how um, Israeli kind of like identity and stuff ignores Palestinians, um, is that similar to here? Like is there, in terms of like Australian kind of mythology and whatever like is it and then what are the differences I guess maybe to well not being an expert on the Australian situation I couldn't necessarily tell you what the differences are but in terms of parallels I mean they're they're many folds so your basic settler colonial myths that I spoke about before are absolutely shared by the Australian context so making the desert bloom um, the idea of pioneering in frontiers. In fact, in uh, in 2013, the Australian Post, um, in a joint stamp issue with the Israeli Post, um, commemorated the Battle of Beersheba, which of course happens in World War One, 1917. The Palestinians joined with the Anzacs um, against um, against the the Turkish armies, and of course the idea here is uh, in the in the commemoration is that this creates the way for the Israeli state. And so in 2013, when these stamps are released, you have the then foreign, uh, then Israeli diplomat uh, to Australia saying things like, um, we're both very young countries and we have shared histories and we have made our deserts bloom. Um, and so there's very much this sense of um, the settler colonial kind of barren, barren lands that you've um, made good. But I mean, the other thing I want to say, and I guess this is sort of a little bit more in a contemporary sense, um, with the recent announcement uh, by Trump purporting to move the uh, embassy to Jerusalem, you have to imagine this. I mean, if you compare it, for example, to Australia, um, the Knesset, which is the Israeli parliament, is already in Jerusalem. And in some ways, even prior to Trump's move, you kind of have a situation, it would be like the Australian uh, uh, parliament, which is obviously in the, the Australian capital of Canberra, being moved to a sacred site like Uluru, right? So it's sort of, um, it's, it's, it's hostile in the first place. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's always sort of been an ambiguity around Jerusalem as well um, in terms of how it functions. Uh, you know, I think there's... If you kind of look at Tel Aviv, on the one hand, you do have this liberal Israeli bubble, which, don't get me wrong, engenders its own sort of series of problematics. But, it, it, you know, it is a very different space to Jerusalem. And likewise, I think, you know, if you look at contemporary Ramallah, which, you know, is essentially a very middle class city, I think there's a sort of a tendency for people to see Palestine as a war zone. And that's not entirely untrue. But everyday life also continues. And it's a very hedonistic city. And it's a bubble unto itself. So what you sort of wind up with in Jerusalem is this sort of metaphoric halfway between these two these two bubbles which um, I think you know in which both people are regarding it as a capital um, but also you know within these sort of odd frameworks of two state solution so you know you wind up with this very divided city in which you do kind of constantly have these um, 
this sort of strange interface between these two um, sort of national imaginaries, both of which are sort of, you know, <laughs> foundering at the moment in different ways. I mean, the other issue with Jerusalem, and I think this is um, often surprising to people, is that the the concept of East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem is a really new imposition. So prior to 1948, you have the Old City, which is where many of the uh, famous holy sites are, and then you have what's called the New Jerusalem. And so um, in terms of what happens in 1948, uh, the Israel-Palestinian uh, war, um, you end up with all of these beautiful, wealthy Arab neighbourhoods, uh, Palestinian neighbourhoods, which are now in West Jerusalem, um, being occupied essentially by the Israeli forces at that time. Mm. Um, so, so when we're just um, going off your question, Grace, um, in terms of uh, similarities with the, the Australian uh, settler colonial uh, context, um, in, in many ways Australia, when it looks at the Middle East, um, doesn't really have any mu- much of uh, sort of cultural ties with, with the region. So it has a history of conflict with, you know, in um, Egypt, um, you know, uh, Palestine, uh, the Turkey, if we include that in the Middle East, even though it's technically not part of it. <laughs> um, so, um, or it has um, trade or trading. Um, sort of relationships. It doesn't really have sort of uh, cultural relationships as much as as the, sort of other countries do with, with the region as a, as a whole. Um, so I suppose the question is more like how, how would, how, you know, being Palestinian Australians, um, how, how would you, how, do, do you agree with that statement or that, that hypothesis in general? And um, I suppose how, how yeah, Let's just go with that. <laughs> Do you agree with that hypothesis in general? Um, I mean, I don't... I do and I don't. I think that um, Israel's role in the Middle East is changing quite dramatically. And I think also within the Arab world, um, there's a very fundamental difference between um, governments and the people that they govern. Um, and I think, you know, fine, um, Israel has made peace with Jordan, with Egypt... Um, you know, they're normalising relations with the Saudis and the Emiratis at the moment. Um, and that's been quite big and quite recent. So, um, you know, the Emiratis, for instance, have just changed the law to allow Israeli businesses to open up offices in um, Dubai or Abu Dhabi or some of those other sort of uh, major Gulf cities. Likewise, the Saudis are building this new sort of uh, trade zone in the north of Saudi Arabia near the Jordan border, not too far from Israel and Egypt. So I think there are some very strategic business interests that are going on. But you're right. I mean, culturally, Israel has never integrated into the Middle East. And I think, um, you know, that's sort of very evident when you start thinking about things like uh, language, you know. So, for instance, uh, Hebrew has many of the same sounds that Arabic makes, and uh, Arab Jews, which make up a significant portion of Israel's population, um, generally are regarded as, um, you know, their accent is regarded as a a sort of, you know, quite working class. So there is this sort of European kind of Ashkenazi accent that's kind of uh, seen as... um, uh, you know, well-to-do and something to, um, you know, acquire in terms of social mobility. So I think there is this strange positionality that Israel has within the broader region. But in terms of your um, question about the relationship, I think, with Australia and the, and, and the Middle East, I think historically um, this doesn't necessarily have to be the, the case. So to look back at World War One, if you go around to any uh, war memorial in Australia commemorating World War One. Um, 
Palestine will be will be written on that memorial, and you have um, a lot of commemoration. You know, prior to recent movements of the you know joint stamp issue and uh, the, the recent you know 2017 uh, commemoration of the Battle of Beersheba between Israel and Australia um, in Israel, um, things could things could have gone other ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Thank you, uh, Michaela and Sari, for joining us uh, this morning. That's all we have time for, unfortunately. Um, so that was uh, Dr. Michaela Sahar um, and Dr. Sari Zanar-Niri, um, who are both uh, Australian-Palestinian um, uh, academics. Uh, but also, wait, before we go, um, you have a poem to read us, don't you? Oh, sure. Um, so this comes from a, a sequence called Notes to an Anthropology of an Occupation. It's the final poem. It's called Have You Heard of the Israelis? Seen through a pinhole as we rarely viewed landscapes then or now, I can detail that narratives in law are defaulted on, love withdrawn, and time is caught in the fabric of all degradation. This may not hold, but it's true. What line was more reconciled to the passagiata of things subsiding before us? Were it my greatest desire instead to rescind the continuum said to recede, one insignificant happening tight as a bone corset, completing a dark chamber's circuit, if an eyelid had halted light propagation to inquire after the disappearance of subject, disrupt their dividing, abandoned silver preparations for a print not taken, would we have remained yet still? We return to maps with false names. Thank you, Michaela. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, the New International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. 500 men strike for Union busters are back on the docks this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the community assembly at any time of the day or night. For more information and details... Call Workers Solidarity on 0401-516-967. Okay, so we were just listening with uh, to uh, Dr. Michaela Sahar and Dr. Sari Zanineri. Um, so th- we had quite a busy show today, didn't we, Grace? We did. Um, so at 7.10, we had a snippet from um, Girls Offensive Radio, um, who were talking to Ball Busters, a, a queer punk rock band. Um, and then what did we have afterwards? Um, at 7.30, we talked to Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth um, about the new appointment uh, made by the government to the Australian Charities Organisation that I can't remember exactly what it's called. ACNC. Thank you. <laughs> That's all I remember. <laughs> and also the like really long kind of continued fight against um, advocacy and political groups who also who have um, charity status as well. 
Um, and then at 7.45, we talked with uh, Professor Lyndall Ryan from the Centre for the History of Violence and Centre for the 21st Century Humanities at the University of Newcastle. Mm. So uh, Professor Ryan and research team uh, created an online interactive map documenting massacre site locations um, across Australia. Uh, and then at 8 a.m., we spoke with uh, Riyad Al-Adasi, who's a public relations officer for the Palestinian Community Association of Victoria, who um, organised a protest yesterday um, in retaliation of Trump's remarks where he announced that the United States will recognise Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Mm. Um, and for those of you looking for things to do on the weekend, on Saturday at 11 o'clock, there's a rally to save Victoria's um, market. And then on Sunday at 11.30, there's a Black Lives Matter, no racism, no far right, no police violence in Flemington um, as well. That's You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.